What's going on, everybody? It's your boy Marvelous Play here once again with another episode of the Disconnect Podcast. The Disconnect Podcast is your new bi-monthly source for topics across gaming, live streaming, and society headlines. And here, we just aim to spark a little bit of conversation um, for your day-to-day basis. Now, you can find the Disconnect Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Red Circle. If you enjoyed this episode, then please, please be sure to rate it five stars on Apple Podcasts to help bump us up in the search algorithm to help expose us to brand new listeners and even share it with friends, family, coworkers, and people you think may enjoy our content as well. Now, this episode is going to be one that's more driven to the society aspect of the description I mentioned beforehand. There's been a lot of news. There's been a lot of things that's been weighing heavily on my mind that I kind of just want to speak up and speak out about. And I feel in my heart of hearts that this is the best way for me to express myself and get a lot of my thoughts off my shoulders and also shared with some of you out there who may feel the exact same way as I am, or even if you feel opposite and you want to debate me on some of this, then feel free. I'm open to that conversation as well, too. But The conversation needs to be had and the conversation needs to be had now. So let's get into it. I just want to say four names. George Floyd, 46 years old. Breonna Taylor, 26 years old. Ahmaud Arbery, 25 years old. And then Tony McDade, 38 years old. Why do we speak on these names? These four names, and you should know who they are if you've been paying attention to any local or national news, are four more names added to the very extensive list of unarmed black citizens that have been killed by local law enforcement, by the police. Now, it's no secret that America has a very deep history with police brutality when it comes to its black citizens. However, it seems that the conversation is getting drawn out and getting longer every single year because we refuse to acknowledge what's going on in our neighborhood, what's going on in our society, and not focusing on the underlying problems that we could easily fix or resolve to ensure that these senseless killings do not happen anymore. It's a very deep conversation that we need to have. Some are willing or having it right now. Others are slow to open up about it. But I want to give my two cents. And I want to speak on what's in my heart, okay? First things first, Black Lives Matter. Now, many of you or all of you should know the movement known as Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter basically erupted on the scene as a means of peaceful protest to let society know that we're tired. Retired of the senseless killing of unarmed black citizens to local law enforcement and there being no accountability for these actions. We're talking men and women who live and work beside you day in and day out as EMTs, as officers themselves, as physicians, as college students, as engineers, your local bouncer, your local hair beautician, a school educator. Any profession you can think of, black people have found a way to work alongside you 
in your local neighborhood, wherever you may live, okay? However, when we're killed by local law enforcement, there's no accountability. There's no justice. There is not a sense of priority when it comes to having the parties involved brought to justice and made to answer for their actions. Why is this? Well, if we go back to the history of the police, the police actually stemmed from what used to be known as slave patrols in America. See, back around the time when slavery was still an economic asset to this country, as they like to put it, we had groups of people that were willing to help free slaves who were tired of suffering, who were tired of bondage, who were tired of cruel treatment, punishment, and made to work long hour days, sold off from their families and loved ones. Because slavery in and of itself is an ugly, ugly practice that America built itself upon. But in doing so and freeing the slaves, America allowed groups of private citizens, if you will, the ability to put a, put a star on their chest and go out and hunt down vigilante rogue slaves, if, if you will, known as slave patrols. Now, eventually, this group would evolve into what we now know as modern-day police officers, people that are supposed to be sworn to protect the innocent, uphold justice, defend our rights, uphold our laws and to the and to those who do it right i salute you but for every good cop there's one that's complacent there's one that is not speaking up there's one that's silent and then there's one who is just outright not upholding the standards to which they are being asked to uphold those are the ones I'm speaking to, and those are the ones that I'm frustrated by. So now that we get how we've gone from slave patrol to police officer, how does this fit into Black Lives Matter? Once again, like I said, we're tired of unarmed black citizens being killed by police and not being held accountable. And with that accountability comes officers who are unwilling to speak up who are unwilling to call out the bad apples, who are unwilling to cross what's known as the blue line to essentially betray their brothers and sisters in blue. Because if they were to do so, they would be out, they would be ousted from the police force. They would be treated as, you know, outliers, as rogues. They would not be welcomed in the stations or the precincts in which they work to make a living. That's the main caveat that sucks about having the whole blue line aspect when it comes to police authority and speaking out about what's right when you witness these killings. So the citizens, especially black citizens, black citizens came upon themselves to have Black Lives Matter to peacefully protest that we will not do this no more. Our voices will not go unheard. You will not kill us and gun us down in the streets and there will be no lack of accountability. We want justice. We want reform. 
We want the people who are responsible to take accountability and to be brought to justice by their fellow officers and the district attorneys, which have been appointed by the people. And so this movement has been around for many, many years now, going back to many other cases such as Sarah Bland, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, the list goes on and on, Eric Garner, just a few of the many, many names affected by senseless police killings and brutality. So now that we've gone into Black Lives Matter and we're here in 2020 and we have four more names added to the list, people now want to debate, want to debate on peaceful protest versus violent demonstration. And this is one I set back long and hard and I wanted to think about and kind of plot my thoughts on out accurately because it's a very touchy subject, but one I feel much needs, needs to be addressed. So I have some notes here and I'm going to read off on them a little bit because it helps to keep my mind organized so I can share my thoughts with you accurately and sorry for bumping the microphone. So peaceful protest versus violent demonstration. Well, here's the thing. America has always had a history with riots. We go back to many, many riots in America's history, some including Shays' Rebellion of 1786, the Cincinnati Riots of 1814, and then the New York City Draft Riots of 1863, which, if we go and read about, is actually quite interesting. The New York City Draft Riots, known as Draft Week, were violent disturbances in Lower Manhattan, Raleigh regard as the culmination of white working class discontent with new laws passed by Congress that year to draft men to fight in the ongoing American Civil War. These riots remain the largest civil and most racially charged urban uh, disturbance in American history. Now, if you read here, the rioters were overwhelmingly white working class men, mostly Irish or of Irish descent, who feared free black people competing for work and resented that wealthier man who could afford to pay $300 equivalent to $9,200 as of 2017 uh, commu um, commutation fee to hire a substitute was spared from the draft. Now, why is this important? America has a history with riots. But the thing with riots is when people get angry, shit gets done. When people are willing to speak out, and are willing to put their livelihood on the line for what they believe in, things get done. Now, am I encouraging violence? No, I don't condone or encourage violence ever. However, there is a time and place for everything, as American history has taught us. America was founded on the notion of violence, on riots, and if I can't demonstrate peacefully, then I will demonstrate what I believe in by force. Everything in America has been taken by force. Lest we forget how Americans accumulated this land, for instance. Unless we forget how American, Americans accumulated the island of Hawaii, for example. Or Vietnam. Or Puerto Rico or many other territories across the world, how we always, they've always staked claim to lands and people and resources that were not theirs to stake. 
and even bringing over people who are not theirs to will and to control. That is the true history of America. Now, I'm not saying this to bash the country, but it is what it is. America has a history of riots and violence. It was built off of it. It loves it. That's how it's always gotten shit done. But with that being said, knowing that this country is built off riots and violence, the people who are most who are most affected by it also have the right to speak out peacefully. And when peaceful protests no longer when peaceful protest is no longer acknowledged and falls upon deaf ears, then violent demonstration occurs. I think Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. A riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. A very powerful statement from a man who was assassinated for his peaceful ideologies back in the 1960s. At the height of his civil rights movement and his leadership, Martin Luther King Jr. was only 39 years old. And America had him assassinated, gunned down. Now, years later, we come to find out the American government had a slight role in that assassination. But think to this. And I want you to really think about this. Why is it that whenever a peaceful protest turns to violent demonstration, America wants peaceful protest again, especially when it comes to black Americans, black citizens. For the last 40 to 50 years, we have lived by the ideology that peaceful demonstration will reach the hearts and minds of those who have disenfranchised us, who have oppressed us, who have set limits and barriers to the quality of life that we want for ourselves that many others enjoy, but cannot seem to obtain. Why is it that when we raise our voices, when we become angry, upset, and want to demonstrate that, that we should fall back to the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. However, at the height of his popularity, when he was adamant that peaceful ideology would win in the hearts and minds of the American citizens who oppress us most, America met him with resistance, eventually leading to his untimely assassination. At the young age of 39, Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't even that old. He was just 39 years old, which is still fairly young, given the amount of work and the amount of things he could have still accomplished had he been alive today. It really makes you wonder, it really makes you think. So why are we angry? Why are we upset? Why do we vocalize ourselves the way that we do? There's many a reasons that we can cover. We can cover social inequality. We can cover the wealth gap. We can cover the lack of affordable health care, affordable housing, 
the list goes on and on. But at, a at its deepest root, one major thing and one major factor that many universities and many scientists have spoken up about is epigenetics. Now I'm gonna show you a display capture of epigenetics and what it actually means and what it details, but I want you to just think about this real quick. Epigenetics is the science of how the external environment affects us at the molecular level by altering gene expression and function that can in return be heritable. It refers to chemical modifications or tags that mark specific genes around the intricate DNA complex. Now, why do I bring this up? This is an article sent to me by my good friend Yanni that was published in 2013 and revised again in 2017. And I'll go ahead and share a bit of it with you. The epigenetics of being black and feeling blue, understanding African-American vulnerability to disease. And I'll go ahead and I'll throw this link in the video description below for those of you who will be watching the YouTube compilation of this. These modifications can alter gene expressions influencing our biology and function. Think of a tag as a volume control knob that signals the gene to turn up or down its program function. Our gene system for cues from the environment, um, such as the food we eat, the kind of milius where we live and work, the circumstances of our birth, and the race and class-based interactions we, sh we share with one another. These factors in part determine how our genes respond in ways that expose more vulnerable populations to disease. Very interesting. So with that being said, and the main takeaway from this is stress, terror, inferiority, all can be inherited down the gene pool from parent to child, parent to child, parent to child for generations to come, especially trauma. Trauma from, I don't know, slavery, from apartheid, from segregation, from lynching, from being systematically, pro racially profiled, systematically oppressed, those kinds of traumas are able to be stamped upon your DNA and can be inherited from child to child. I mean, from parent to child, parent to child, excuse me. It really makes you sit and wonder how many of us have not gone crazy given the genetic imprint that we have and we are conditionally born with before we even get to know this world in its full, in, in its entirety, if you will. It's really quite interesting. There's some other things I speak about right now that I'm gonna highlight. African-Americans and their descendants have paid an exorbitantly high price for living in an unequal society in a number of reprehensible ways through the practice of forced labor, high incarceration rates, frequent underemployment and low educational expectation. And now, Significant healthcare challenges are among the most salient forms of white on black discrimination. In the absence of sweeping governmental reforms that place human rights over property rights, African Americans must take greater ownership in their own healthcare by becoming better informed on effective ways to reduce stress to the extent possible given the maintenance of systems of domination and oppression to have an impact upon the quality of black life. Otherwise, these persistent 
persistently elevated stress levels from chronic exposure to race-based discrimination have been shown to be physiological and mentally bad for health and well-being, both at the individual and institutional levels of society. The result is epigenetic tags with harmful gene expressions. We've endured this for over 20 generations, as it notes in the article. And we carry a heavy burden upon our shoulders that's not easily lifted, that's not easily expressed or <sighs> resolved, if I can put it that way. So when we're asked to overcome, to deal with it, to just get over it, all lives matter, all things are equal. That's not the case. People say, well, you're, you, you act like you're born with a chip on your shoulder. You're right. Science has proven it. Genetics has proven it. And that chip sometimes is very heavy. It gets very, very heavy if I may be quite honest. But see, I don't say this to play victim. I don't say that I don't have a role as a proud black man to not seek therapy, to not speak on the things that harm me mentally, emotionally, and physically. It's still my duty at the end of the day to do my just do for what's best for me and my family. However, if you were born Genetically, with the stress, the trauma of your ancestors across 20 plus generations, would you not feel a little bit more, would you not feel a little bit more antsy to, a little, a little bit easier to anger, to be upset, to be frustrated with how society views you and treats you and your fellow peers? People who look like you, just like you, come from a similar background like you. Though you try day in and day out to fight a stereotype that is not you, would you not feel just a little bit uneasy? Most would, and that's fair. And there are even some white Americans who've expressed how unfair this is. One key figure, Jane Elliott. And it's a video I found on Twitter the other day, and I wish I could share it with you, where she is speaking into a crowd of white Americans. I believe it was a university lecture, but she was speaking to a crowd of white Americans, especially most of them being white female Americans. And she asked them one very key question. If any of you out there would love to trade places or be treated the way this country treats black Americans on a day-to-day -day basis, please stand up. The crowd, naturally, nobody stood up. So she posed to them the question again. Many of you did not understand the instructions, so I'll ask the question again. If any of you would want to be treated in the same manner that America treats its black and brown citizens for a day, would you please stand up? And once again, nobody stands up. There's just a bunch of strange looks. There's a bunch of blank stares. There's a bunch of hair twirling, pencil tapping, but yet nobody in the crowd stands. So she poses them one more question. 
So how is it that you know what America has done to our fellow black citizens? And although you would not be willing to trade places with them, you would live day to day with knowing that citizens are being treated in this manner. How is it you can live with yourself day in and day out knowing that you have the privilege of not being racially profiled, not being denied for home loans based on the skin, the tone, the skin tone, your skin tone, and other means of racial discrimination? How could you want that for a select few of the American population and not want it for yourself? And how could you live with it? The question is, just do. And that is where white privilege at its best shows. See, many know that what is happening to black Americans is wrong. That we are very much profiled. We are very much discriminated. We are very much not born on the same equal playing field as many others in this country. But it's just business as usual. It's just the way the world works. Everybody feels like if they can't be the one to speak up or make an active change, that it's, I shouldn't, I shouldn't mind my business. It's not my place to speak on injustices of what's going on to my black neighbor. I'm not racist. I'm not racist. I didn't put those laws in place. I didn't put the oppression in place. Why should I speak on, on it? Why should I make a change? The key reason we want more people in the fight against racial oppression and discrimination is because volumes of people speak louder. A united front is better than a single voice. A diverse united front speaks volumes more than just one ethnic group or race alone could do. See, when everybody does their part, some more than others, it doesn't matter, but when everybody does just a small portion together, you get a greater sum than what everybody could have done individually. And that's the thing people fail to realize. Though you feel like you might not have an impact, your voice next to my voice, next to the man or woman next to me, we can make our voices ring through the halls. We can make our voices ring through the streets. We can speak out against what's wrong, what can be fixed, what should be resolved. The injustices that we see day in and day out, regardless of our background, regardless if we're white, black, Hispanic, Latinx, Asian, Native American, Pacific Islander, it doesn't matter. The culmination of voices together is stronger than one individual. If everybody did a part, then the people who it matters to the most, the people at the top who put policies and laws in place would have no choice but to listen. Otherwise, they don't have an office or a platform by which to support themselves. They don't have a means to go back to Washington. They don't have a means to go back to their government jobs at the Capitol, to their local city governments, whatever the case may be. 
the people are the ones who vote them in ultimately. And when the people's needs are not met or not heard and people are dissatisfied, the people have a means and have a responsibility to remove those in power who have not done what we have asked of them to do, which is respect all human life, treat us fairly, give us equal opportunity, ensure that nobody goes through the systematic oppression, racism, profiling that I've experienced time and time again. Make life better for the next generation of people so that they can enjoy the fruits of what America is supposed to offer. This is supposed to be the greatest country in the world. And at times it is, but oftentimes in more recent history, it's not been. It has fallen short of that promise. That promise, which was built on the back of unpaid slave labor. Even looking at our fair white house, an example in DC, that white house, which was constructed by black slaves. But we don't acknowledge that. Interesting. So how do we suppose we get change? Well, there's many a people who have given their ideas on how we reform our criminal justice system. I'm not a politician. I am a podcast host. I am a private citizen, but I have my own thoughts and ideas on what we can do to make things better. But before we make things better, we got to understand the underlying problems of how we've gotten here. So let me give you a little bit of food for thought. In terms of criminal, criminal justice system reform, it starts with our officers. And I'm going to get to the district attorneys in a minute, but let me speak just on the subject of police reform. In the United States, the average amount of training to become a police officer is 21 weeks, with some academies being shorter than that. Mississippi, 12 weeks on average, Alabama, 13 weeks, West Virginia, 15. But as a national average, it takes 21 weeks to become a police officer in the United States of America versus developed country as Europe, where their officers go through 130 weeks of training to wear the blue, the uniform in blue and to become a member of the fraternal order of police officer. So let, let, let's weigh that. 21 weeks in the United States on average versus 130 weeks of the same profession to uphold your laws and your standards for all citizens. It's not hard to see where, where this becomes a bit skewed, but let's continue. In total, our police officers in the United States spend 110 hours of firearm self-defense training versus only eight hours of conflict management and mediation. Now think about that. Why is that important? 110 hours of firearm self-defense training versus eight hours of conflict management and mediation. So you're telling me we have basically put officers and individuals on the street 
that are naturally trained to shoot first, ask questions later, versus people who are taught to mediate, de-escalate situations using words and empathy before they should ever put their hand on their firearm to de-escalate a situation. That's quite interesting. This is where we start to have the disconnect. We talk a lot about communication and the power of words and what it can mean to individuals who are on the edge, who are panicked, who are distressed, who are distraught, who are fearful of their lives. Rationale can be brought into a situation and can make things better for everybody across the board if we learn to communicate effectively. However, if we do not learn to communicate effectively, which we seem to not be doing with only eight hours of conflict management and mediation and taught to shoot first, then we're gonna have more bodies on the streets. We're gonna have more protests. We're gonna have more violent demonstrations. There will be more riots. There will be more looting. Until we get to the point where mediation and conversation and empathy is the first course of action amongst our police department, we will keep stacking bodies and aiming, adding names to the list that is ever growing. Do you understand me? This is a problem. It needs to stop. We can prevent it. However, we are not doing enough. And what is not doing enough? Enough means getting sufficient government funding for our officers. Actually, even before that, let's back up a little bit because I don't want y'all to think throwing money at a problem is going to fix the problem, although that's part of the solution. What we should do is before we vet a person to become a police officer, we need to make sure we have vetted their background. This means more extensive background checks, more psych evaluations, more you know, employment um, reports. How do they deal with people of marginalized communities on the job? How do they deal with them in their day-to-day? -day? What, what are their thinkings about upper class and lower class, the wealth gap? How do they view a firearm? Is it a tool to one's self-defense? Or is it a tool to embolden one to feeling powerful? This is why we need background checks and this is why we need psych evaluations. More and more and more before we put the badge and the uniform on some rookie and just put them on the streets, especially in marginalized communities. This is what we should be doing. Then once we do that, then the funding can kick in. Then we can start throwing money at the problem. Then we can get more government funding for sufficient training, for mediation, less emphasis on firearms and self-defense and more on interpersonal communication, especially with people that are not of the same background and gender and ethnicity as you. Mediation can be taught. Communication can be taught. 
Firearms and self-defense can be taught. And it is taught, apparently, with 110 hours versus 8 hours of conflict man management or mediation. So there's the disconnect. We shoot first, but we talk less. We can fix that. Now, once that has been done, what else could we do for criminal justice reform? Well, say we now have a situation where talking and de-escalation no longer works. An officer is forced to fire their firearm out of fear, out of necessity. Well, my proposal is what many people have said before. We need independent review committees that are ran by people, private citizens like you and I, to investigate the public misconduct of officers in, in our communities. Now, this is, not, this is not meant to be a witch hunt. I don't want to go around hunting down police unjustly. We want to give credit where credit is due to the men and women that do their jobs the right way and come home and make a living by upholding our laws and protecting us. Their men, those men and women are meant to be commended. However, for those who do not, there needs to be an independent review by private citizens to investigate their public misconduct. See, the problem is anytime an officer falls short of their duty to serve and protect. They leave it amongst themselves to investigate their fellow brethren, which is goes back to what I was speaking about earlier when it comes to the blue line. Many an officer see the misconduct that goes on on the job, in the field, in the office, but are unwilling to speak up, lest they be you know, labeled as a pariah, as a traitor in their own precinct or in their own office. It's a very sticky situation, which is why officers should not investigate officers. And then the district attorney of that, of that district should not be allowed to defend or persecute that officer. The problem with that is the, the union, police officers union, is always in the pockets of the district attorney. They work side and side. The police officers union oftentimes are not spill, spend and shell out thousands if not millions of dollars per year, especially when it comes for re-election time for district attorneys. Basically putting our DAs in the pockets of the police officers to begin with, making it more liable than not that they are not convicted by the district attorney which is meant to review and investigate their actions, okay? So I would definitely say we should be leaving the persecution, defense, whatever the case may be, to a district attorney of another neighboring district or county that is independent of the one being investigated. That is how I would go about this. But not only that, with the Independent Review Committee, we should have a database of officers' merits and shortcomings across state borders. See, the other problem is officers are often laid off or terminated, if they are at all. If an officer is fired or terminated from the job, well, guess what? There's not really a database that I know of that will share their merits and 
shortcomings, both merits and shortcomings, across state borders. So an officer in one state is more likely to just move away, go to another state, and be put back on the street as an officer in another low-income, marginalized community without sensitivity training, without conflict management and mediation. They're just thrust right back onto the street as if nothing has ever happened, while still, sometimes, still receiving a pension from that last job in another state, hundreds or thousands miles away, in the most extreme cases. So there needs to be a database, publicly accessible to the private citizens that will show them and allow them to see the service record of the officers in question that police their streets and serve the public interest day in and day out. That's what I would do. And lastly, like I said before, this is not to meant, this is not meant to serve as judge and jury, but to present a more fair account of rogue officer actions. It's not a witch hunt. We're not out to hunt bad police officers or good police officers. It's meant to bring a level of transparency and accountability that has not been seen in our criminal justice system before. That's how you instill trust with the public. That's how you get justice. That's how you get rightful convictions. That's how you get people persecuted, prosecuted, not persecuted, but prosecuted. That is how we start to make the connection between the cops that are doing their jobs versus the ones who are on the streets on a power trip and have racially motivated, have racially motivated, I guess, tendencies behind their actions when they put on that uniform and put on that badge and holster that firearm to their hip every single day. That's what we could do. And that's what we don't speak enough of. It's not impossible. It's not hard. I think we could do it. However, it takes a little bit of work from everybody on the front lines. So what does it take from us? Once again, we need, we don't need just allies. We need people who don't look like us to be on the front lines with us. We need them to speak out about what's going on and say it loudly and proudly without worrying about ramifications or judgment from their peers, their coworkers, their families. Because at the end of the day, what's right is right. No matter the skin tone, sex, creed, color, race, or ethnicity. What's right is right. Secondly, vote. Vote for your local judges. Vote for your local district attorneys. Vote for your government, your mayors, your governors, your representatives, your senators, even up to the presidential level. Vote for the people who you believe would make a change and would stand up for what's right in the face of judgment, discrimination, you know, social backlash, whatever the case may be. It's not hard. People just, people have become cowardice for doing what's right in the face of profit and the face of reelection and votes, but it doesn't need to be that way. 
So vote from a local level all the way to a federal level. Secondly, build our own. We have to have our own even as a people. We have to have more emphasis on our own bank infrastructure, on our own communities, on our own politicians, on our own educators, our own scientists. There's so much more that we can do amongst each other as Black Americans that the possibilities are endless. And I'm not here to give that lecture. We'll probably talk about that on another video or in another discussion. But there's so much internally that we can do within our own communities that can impact how others should properly treat and respect us when we're just trying to achieve the same quality of life as them in a country that we didn't ask to be here in a country that we've only ever known for many of us. If we're gonna be here, we want equal rights. We want equal respect. We want equal footing and equal justice. And then last but not least, just love one another. It's not hard. Everybody is human at the end of the day. The pigment of your skin tone, this does not matter. Everybody is human. We all bleed the exact same. We have all been ordained to share this earth with each other. So while we're here on this earth, let's do a little bit more to love one another, respect one another, and put the pettiness and differences aside, such as skin tone and pigmentation to rest. Because at the end of the day, that's all it is. It's a difference. But in that difference, that's what makes us beautiful. That's what makes our race, the human race, unique. That we, come in, that we come in every color, shade, hue, size, and language known to man. But yet we can all find common ground in some aspect, in some way. It's not hard. But that's what I would ask, and that's what I would suggest, if we want to make a change, to be better and to have more. Because all I can say is I am tired and I am frustrated. I don't want to see more names added to this ever-expanding list of unarmed black citizens gunned down by police, senseless violence, acts of discrimination, oppression, racially driven criminal activities. That's all I got. That's all I have to say. So let me know your thoughts down in the comment section below. What are some additional steps that we can take to ensure that no more black citizens are added to this ever-expanding list of police brutality victims? What are some steps that local and federal governments can take? I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. As always, if you're listening to this, be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Red Circle, and any other platform where you enjoy your podcast content. If you're watching this video on YouTube, Give us a thumbs up and be sure to click that, click that subscribe button and turn on that notification bell to be alerted when more content like this is uploaded on this channel, okay? With that being said, this is your boy Marvelous Play. And as always, love one another, take care of one another, and we'll see you next time on the Disconnect Podcast. Peace.